Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 5, Part 2 of The Shades of the Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado. The Shades of the Wilderness by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 5. The Dangerous Road. Part 2. Harry went deep into the thickets before he sat down. He had no doubt that they would follow him, but at present he was out of their sight and hearing. He felt a mixture of elation and sadness, elation over his temporary escape, and sadness over the loss of his gallant horse. But one could not dwell long on regrets at such a time, and, advancing a little farther, he sat down among the densest bushes that he could find with the shotgun across his knees. Now Harry saw that the horse had really done all that it was possible for him to do. He had brought him to the wood, and within he would have been a drawback. A man on foot couldn't conceal himself far more easily. Everything favored him. There were bushes and vines everywhere, and he could be hidden like a deer in its covert. He looked up at the sun shining through the tops of the trees and saw that he had kept to his true course. His flight had taken him directly toward Lee at a much faster pace than he would have come otherwise. The enemy had driven him on his errand at double speed. He felt that he could spare a little time now while he waited to see what the pursuit would do. His feeling of exultation was now unalloyed. Deep in the forest, with his foes looking for him in vain, the spirit of Henry Ware was once again more strong within him. He was the reincarnation of the great hunter. He lay so still, clasping the shotgun, that the little creatures of the woods were deceived. A squirrel ran up the trunk of an oak six feet away, and stood fearlessly in a fork with his bushy tail curved over his back. A small gray bird perched in a bough just over Harry's head and poured out a volume of song. Farther away sounded the tap-tap of a woodpecker on the bark of a dead tree. Harry, although he did not move, was watching and listening with intense concentration, but his ears now would be his surest signals. He could not see deep in the thickets, but he could hear any movement in the underbrush a hundred yards away. So far there was nothing but the hopping of a rabbit. The bird over his head sang on. There was no wind among the branches, not even the flutter of leaves to distract his attention from anything that might come on the ground. He rejoiced in this period of rest, of the nerves rather than purely physical. He had been keyed so high that now he relaxed entirely and soon lay perfectly flat but with a shotgun still clasped in his arms. He had a soft couch. Under him were the dead leaves of last year, and over him was the pleasant gloom of thick foliage, already turning brown. 
the bird sang on his clear and beautiful note came from a point directly over his head but harry could not see his tiny body among the leaves he became for a little while more interested in trying to see him than in hearing his pursuers it was annoying that such a volume of sound should come from a body that could be hidden by a leaf if a man could shout in proportion to his own size, he might be heard eight to ten miles away. It was an interesting speculation, and he pursued it. While he was pursuing it, his mind relaxed more and more, and traveled farther and farther away from his flight and hiding. Then his heavy eyelids pulled down, and while his pursuers yet searched the thickets for him, he slept. But his other self, which men had thought of as far back as Socrates, kept guard. When he had slept an hour, a tiny voice in his ear, no louder than the ticking of a watch, told him to awake, that danger was near. He obeyed the call, sleep was lifted from him, and he opened his eyes. But with inherited caution, he did not move. He still lay flat in his covert, trusting his ears, and did not make a leaf move about him. His ears told him that leaves were rustling not very far away, not more than a hundred feet. His power of hearing was great, and the forest seemed to make it uncommonly sensitive and delicate. He knew that the rustling of the leaves was made by a man walking. By and by he heard his footfalls, and he knew that he wore heavy boots, or his feet would not have crushed down in such a decisive manner. He was looking for something, too, because the footfalls did not go straight on, but veered about. Harry was well aware that it was a Union soldier, and that he was the object of the search. He was a clumsy man, not used to forests, because Harry heard him stumble twice when his feet caught on vines. Nor was any comrade near, or he would have called to him for the sake of companionship. Harry judged that he was originally a mill hand, and he did not feel the least alarm about him, laughing a little at his clumsiness and awkwardness as he trod heavily among the bushes, tripped again on the vines, and came so near to falling that he could hear the rifle rattle when it struck a tree. He did not have the slightest fear of the man, and at last, raising his head, he took a look. All his surmises were justified. He saw a great hulking youth of heavy and dull countenance, carrying a rifle awkwardly, his place obviously around some town and not in the depths of a forest, looking for a wary enemy, who knew more of the wilderness than he could ever learn in all his life. Harry saw that he was perspiring freely, and he looked more like the hunted than the hunter. His eyes expressed bewilderment. He was obviously lonely and apprehensive, not because he was a coward, but because the situation was so strange to him. Besides his rifle, he carried a large knapsack, so much distended that Harry knew it to be full of food. It was this that decided him. A soldier, like an army, must travel on its stomach, and he wanted that knapsack. Moreover, he meant to get it. He leveled the shotgun and called in a low tone, but a tone so sharp that it could be heard distinctly by the one to whom it was addressed throw up your hands at once. The man threw them up so abruptly that the rifle fell from his shoulder into the bushes, and he turned around, staring face forward to the point from which the command had come. Harry saw at once that he was a foreign birth, probably. The features inclined to the Slav type, although Slavs were not then common in this country, even in the mill towns of the north. Are you an American? asked Harry, standing up. All but two years of my life. The first two years, then, as you speak good English. What's your name? Michael Stanislav. Do you think that anybody named Michael Stanislav has the right to interfere in the quarrel of the northern and southern states? Don't the Stanislavs have trouble enough in the country where the Stanislavs grow? The big youth stared at him without understanding. You know who I am? asked Harry severely. The running rebel we all look for. 
Rebels don't run. Besides, there are no rebels. Anyway, I'm not the man you're looking for. My name is Robin Hood. Robin Hood? Yes, Robin Hood. Didn't you ever hear of him? Never. Then you have the honor of hearing of him and meeting him at the same time. As I said, my name's Robin Hood and my trade is that of a benevolent robber. I lie around in the greenwood and I don't work. I have a lot of followers, Friar Tuck and others, but they're away for a while. They're as much opposed to work as I am. That's why they're my followers. We're the friends of the poor because they have nothing we want, and we're the enemies of the rich because they have a lot that we do want and that we often take. Still, we couldn't get along very well if there were no rich for us to rob. It's like taking sugar water from a maple tree. We don't take too much because it would kill the tree, and we want to take its sugar water again, and many times. Do you understand? Yes, replied the big youth, but Harry knew he didn't. Harry, meanwhile, was listening keenly to all that was passing in the forest, and he was sure that no other soldier had wandered near. It was perhaps partly a feeling of loneliness on his own part that caused him to linger in his talk with Michael Stanislav. Michael, he continued, you appreciate our respective positions, don't you? Ah, said Michael in a puzzled voice. I've explained carefully to you that I'm Robin Hood. You, at the present moment, represent the rich. I am not rich. Before I turn soldier, I work in a mill in Bridgeport. That's all very well, but you can't get out of it by referring to your past. Just now you're a proxy of the rich, and it's my duty to rob you. The mouth of the big fellow expanded into a wide grin. You won't rob me, he said. I have not a cent, but I'm going to rob you just the same. Don't you dare drop a hand toward the pistols in your belt. If you do, I'll blow your head off. I'm covering you with a double-barreled shotgun. Each barrel contains about 20 buckshot, and at close range, their blast would be so terrific that you'd make an awful-looking corpse. I hold my hands up a long time. Don't want to be any kind of corpse. That's a good boy. Steady now. Don't move a muscle. I'm going to rob you. It's a brief and painless operation. It's much easier than pulling a tooth. He deftly removed the two pistols and the accompanying ammunition from the man's belt, placing them in his own. His belt of cartridges he put on the ground beside the fallen rifle, and then as he felt a glow of triumph, he passed the well-filled knapsack from the stalwart shoulders of the other to his own shoulders, equally stalwart. Is everything in it first class, Michael? He demanded with much severity. The best. Our army feeds well. It's a good thing for you that it's so. Robin Hood is never satisfied with anything second class, and he's likely to be offended if you offer it to him. On the whole, Michael, I think I like you, and I'm glad you came this way. But do you care for good advice? Yes, sir. That's right. Say sir to me. It pleases my robber's heart. Then, my advice to you is never again go into the woods alone. All the forests look alike to those who don't know it, and you're lost in a minute. Besides, it's filled with strange and terrible creatures. Robin Hood, that's me, though I have some redeeming qualities. The Arithmian boar. The hydra-headed monster. Medusa of the snaky locks. Cyclops. Polyphemus. With one awful eye. The deceitful sirens, the old man of the mountain, Woden and Osiris, and, last and most terrible of all, the Baron Munchausen. A flicker of fear appeared in the eyes of the captive. But I'll see that none of these monsters hurt you, said Harry consolingly. The open is directly behind you, about a mile. Right about. Wheel. Well done. Now you won't see me again, but you'll hear me giving commands. Forward, march! Quit stumbling. No true forester ever does. Nor is it necessary for you to run into more than three trees. Keep going. No, don't curve. Go straight ahead and remember that if you look back, I shoot. Michael moved swiftly enough. He deemed that on the whole he had fared well. The great brigand Robin Hood had spared his life, and he had lost nothing. The army would replace his weapons and ammunition, and he was glad enough to escape from that terrible forest, even if he were driven out of it. 
Harry watched him until he was out of sight, and then, picking up the rifle and belt of cartridges, he fled on soundless feet deeper into the forest. Two or three hundred yards away, he stopped and heard a great shouting. Michael, no longer covered by a gun, had realized that something untoward had happened to him, and he was calling to his comrades. Harry did not know whether Michael would still call the man who had held him up Robin Hood, nor did he care. He had secured an excellent rifle, which would be much more useful to him than a shotgun, and his course still led straight toward the point where he should find Lee's army on the march. He felt that he ought to throw away the shotgun, as two weapons were heavy, but he could not make up his mind to do so. A hundred yards farther, he heard replies to Michael's shouts, and then several shots, undoubtedly fired by the Union troops themselves as signals of alarm. He laughed to himself. Could such men as these overtake one who was born to the woods, the great-grandson of Henry Ware, the most gifted of the borderers, who in the woods had not only a sixth sense but a seventh as well, and his great-grandson had inherited many of these qualities? Harry, in the forest, felt only contempt for these youths of Central Europe, who could not tell one point of the compass from another. He guided his own course by the sun, and continued at a good pace until he could hear shouts and shots no longer. Then, in the dense woods, where the shadows made a twilight, he came to a tiny stream flowing from under a rock. He knelt and drank the cool water, and then he opened Michael's knapsack. It was truly well filled, and he ate with deep content. Then he drank again and rested by the side of the pool. As he reflected over his journey, Harry concluded that Providence had watched over him so far, and there was much yet to do before he reached Lee. Providence had a strange way of watching over a man for a while and then letting him go. He would neglect no precaution. The forest would not continue forever, and then he must take his chances in the open. Still burning with the desire to be first to reach Lee, he put the rifle and shotgun on either shoulder, and set off at as rapid a pace as the thickets would permit. But he soon stopped, because a sound almost like that of a wind, but not a wind, came to his ears. There was a breeze blowing directly toward him, but he paid no attention to it, because to him most breezes were pleasant and friendly. But the other sound had in it a quality that was distinctly sinister, like the hissing of a snake. Harry paused in wonder and alarm. All his instincts warned him that a new danger was at hand. The breath of the wind suddenly grew hot, and sparks carried by it blew past him. He knew in an instant that the forest was on fire behind him, and that tinder dry it would burn fast and furious. Changing from a walk to a run, he sped forward as swiftly as he could, while the flames suddenly sprang high, waved, and leapt forward in chase. End of chapter 5, part 2 Recording by Michael Packard of Western Colorado.